tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. Has any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church? That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. More fun stuff on this feast of St. Simon and Jude. No relation. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> the voice marriage just said that's for sure. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move along. We'll pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. <clears throat> Send forth your spirit. They shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, all right. Let's go to the big book on the coffee table. And though it is the feast of the apostles Simon and Jude, um, we are the first reading continues in Ephesians. This is, a, I don't know if it continues in Ephesians. This is probably, no, this is the reading appropriate to the feast. Never mind. It's just coincidental that we've been reading Ephesians because I just noticed we wouldn't go from the sixth chapter back to the second, but meh. All right, let's look at it. You, you are no longer strangers or sojourners. Well, that's interesting. You're citizens, uh, fellow citizens with the holy ones. Now, of course, the old translation called that you are fellow citizens with the saints. And I actually like that. Um, we, we, it's so confusing when people talk about the saints, you know, that they, you know, um, as that saint with the smallest, saint with the largest. How, how can, how can St. Saint Michael be a saint? I thought he was an angel. The word saint is just a derivative of the Latin word meaning holy. And uh, uh, that's a translation of the Greek word hagios, which means someone who's holy, a saint, a sanctus. That's all it means. It's an adjective meaning holy, like Holy Mary, Mother of God. That could be said Saint Mary, Mother of God. She's not a saint. She's the Blessed Mother. Oh, she's a saint. Trust me, she's holy. Now, there are canonized saints and there are uncanonized saints. Uh, um, The canonized saints... they are held up as examples of of Christ uh, and and models worthy of following people who we are sure intercede for us in heaven and in a sense they're they're living Bibles. You know, I always talk about well not always, but sometimes I talk about the three testaments of the scriptures. There's the New Testament, the Old Testament, but there's the third testament, which is the lives of the saints. That that uh, 
a, a saint in a certain sense is is Christ continued in history uh, that St. Paul says elsewhere, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So the, to the degree that St. Paul is an imitator of Christ, we should imitate those things. So let's look at this. Because um, there are legal terms here. You are no longer xenoi, which means foreigners, or paroiki. Uh, the oikos is, oikos is a house. Uh, but this this means people who dwell alongside, um, uh, those who are near the house. Citizenship was a very important thing in the ancient world. Uh, we just sort of take it for granted. But citizens in a, in, a, in a town had certain rights, and they had certain responsibilities, and they were involved, even in a monarchy or dictatorship, they were involved in the decision-making process of the city. They would be summoned, all the free citizens uh, would be summoned to an assembly, to an ecclesia, that sort of thing. But if you were a foreigner, you didn't have those rights, nor did you have those responsibilities, nor were you involved in the, in the governance of the city. So this, these are legal terms. Foreigners, the xenos means a foreigner. Uh, the, you, and, and a paroikos means someone who lives next to the house, not in the house. So um, he says, you are sympolitai. A poly, uh, 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 that word is, a polites is a citizen, and sin is with. You are a mutual citizen. In other words, you have a new citizenship uh, with the saints, and you are people who live in the house of God. That, this, is, this would mean a great deal to someone um, um, who lived in the ancient world. That should mean a great deal to us. Well, I think we kind of take it for granted, yeah. This is the, we, we, the voice manager said we kind of take it for granted. We do, and it shouldn't be. This is, we've been granted citizenship in heaven. My goodness. So members of the household of God and that's the oikos. Now, remember, the oikos has a lot of meanings, especially for Jews. An oikos means a house. But when Jesus talks about the house, he's talking about the temple. Uh, when he said, I think it was yesterday's gospel, your house will be abandoned. Um, that means the temple will be abandoned. So there's this new house, this new oikos. You're members of the house of God, built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets with Jesus himself as the capstone. Uh, the capstone, that's, you know, I always get confused by the word capstone because uh, it can mean one of two things. It may be the stone built in, in an arch uh, um, that holds it together. The way you build an arch is the arch holds together by the weight of the stones. And the stone right at the top is the capstone. Uh, but it can also mean the cornerstone, uh, that, that you lay the cornerstone um, and everything radiates from the cornerstone. That's, that's the one um, uh, um, that orients the walls of the building. You know, that, that uh, the pyramids, they laid the main cornerstone and in a straight line that way and a straight line the other way they built the walls and that's the word here the acrogonaiu 
that means the the main stone or the high stone. So it's the the extreme corner. This would be a cornerstone on which everything else is to be oriented. So Jesus is is that stone. Now now <clears throat> I remember saying to a um, uh, in a conversation with a. a uh, no, a semi-observant Jewish fellow who was wanting to marry a Greek Orthodox girl. <laughs> we were talking, and, and uh, <clears throat> I said, you know, we believe that Jesus is the law come to life, the Torah come to life. And he just stopped. What? Jesus is God's law come to life. He's the Torah come to life. And as Jews look at the Torah to figure out how to walk in the world, we don't look at the Torah, the law. We look at Jesus. He is our law. It's utterly amazed him. Um, and I remember saying that to another Jewish person who said, if that could possibly be true, that would be amazing. And it is. That's what it means that Jesus is the cornerstone that we orient our lives on him. You know, so often we're tempted to compare ourselves to, well, that guy in the third row, he's just, I know he's a, I've been into his business, he cheats, it's just horrible. Thank God I'm better than him. Never compare yourself to someone else in the congregation. The only person in the church to whom you should compare yourself is Jesus. So uh, that's something. Well, if we orient ourselves to him, this this sacred, this temple this, is sacred in the Lord is growing up. It grows into this, this temple. Now, this is another important Jewish idea. There were certain messianic expectations. Uh, one of them was the Messiah would rebuild the temple, would purify it. And in order to do that, he would have to rebuild it. The temple had been terribly profaned in the eyes of so many people in uh, in the Holy Land at the time of Christ. The, the Jews, the Essenes, uh, the Essenes would have nothing to do with the temple. Uh, they The temple was absolutely corrupt. You see, the temple was rebuilt, oh, about 500 years before Christ. It had been destroyed by the Babylonians, and then after 70 years... They were allowed to go back by the Persians who defeated the Babylonians and rebuild their temple. And um, the temple that was built was was just a shadow copy of the temple under David. It said that those who had come back from exile, who were old enough to remember the temple, old, old men who had been little boys when they went into exile, they wept to see how, well, how shabby this, this second temple was. Well, it functioned perfectly. It was just fine. Uh, and it was placed on a, the temple was built on, it seems, on a perfectly square um, platform. You got Mount Moriah, and the mountain was leveled off with a retaining wall, and then that was filled in. Uh, it was 500 royal cubits on each side. Well, the Maccabees, uh, throughout the Greeks, after the Greeks had profaned the temple a couple hundred years before Christ, and the Maccabees became the rulers of Israel, and they arrogated both the priesthood and the monarchy to themselves. They were a priestly family, but they had no right to the high priesthood. They certainly had no right to the monarchy. And it seems at a certain point they extended this 500 uh, cubit square platform, this perfectly square platform. They extended it, it seems, for military, possibly for military or governmental purposes. 
they were using the sacred enclosure of God for their own purposes. The temple had been profaned, and it got much worse because Herod the Great, uh, um, about 50 years before Christ, uh, he was made king of the Jews by the Romans, and uh, he decided to please the Jews by rebuilding the temple. He trained 10,000 uh, uh, priests and Levites. That was a number I'd heard, but trained priests and Levites to rebuild the temple from the inside out. So sacrifices never, ever were interrupted. And he built what was thought to be the most beautiful building in the ancient world. And he expanded this platform. Remember the one that had been 500 cubits square? He extended it so that it was, I think the size, they say, of 10 football fields. It's huge. And it's still there. It's called the Haram al-Sharif. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's dominated by Muslims. And the Dome of the Rock is right over the spot, most probably, where the Holy of Holies stood, the threshing floor of Harauna. So the temple was corrupt as far as the Sadducees uh, or as far as not the Sadducees, the Sadducees were in the temple, but the temple was corrupt as far as the Essenes were concerned, and the Essenes would have nothing to do with it. They didn't have lamb at their Passover because they wouldn't go to the temple to sacrifice the lamb. The Essenes were disenfranchised priestly families who were, many of them were out in the desert, some were in certain areas in Jerusalem, and they were waiting for the Messiah to come, and the Messiah would rebuild the temple. He would purify the temple. That's why the the uh, that's why Jesus cleansed the temple. He was symbolically fulfilling that um, that injunction. And I believe that the reason that you see in the Gospel of John uh, that the purification of the temple is at the beginning, because for the readers of the Gospel of John, who are probably followers of John the Baptist. Uh, one of those sects that had rejected uh, the temple, that that would have been the most important thing. Now, Dr. Pitrie, who's very smart, much, much smarter than I, uh, feels that there were two purifications of the temple. I, I, I think that, I suspect that, that the author of the Gospel of John, who I believe to be John, the beloved disciple, uh, he took liberties and put, the, put that story right at the beginning of his his text to let them know what he was talking about, that Jesus was the fulfillment of the messianic expectations. So Jesus was going to rebuild the temple. Did he? Yes. The church is the temple rebuilt. Uh, that, that, that you, this is when, when he uses the word, you are members of the household of God. It doesn't say household in the text. It says you are members of the house of God. Oh, boy, that was a lot to just get to one word. You are members of the house of God, not the household. The household is is uh, the kids, the slaves, everybody. Um, uh, but you're members of the house. And what does that mean? You are living stones. Uh, um, uh, well, actually, maybe, maybe I'm wrong about that. I'm looking at the word. Uh, you are... Um, this this does mean uh never mind i take it back let me see did they mention the word household of god or house of god uh hold on hold on let me go one one verse ahead here never mind okay you can stop the music i'll admit to being wrong it's not oikos it's a kiosk but i i think i'd have to look i'll look at the text during the break but i think that the word oikos is in there also but uh, you you're we're being built into a temple this temple that we are is 
is is the fulfillment of, of Messianic prophecy. Jesus did rebuild the temple, and you and I are it. So this is a beautiful symbol, and and the, this this house of God um, is us. Uh, so I, I think that's that's a, a, a very very beautiful thing, and um, uh, it confirms the messiahship of Jesus, but also it it talks about our our membership, our, our participation in that temple. So that said, let us go to uh, the gospel reading very quickly. Um, when the day came, he called his disciples to himself. Now, very interesting. Jesus went up the mountain to pray, and he spent the night in prayer to God. Um, if Jesus had to spend a whole night in prayer, how much prayer do you think I should have to spend? It means I should never be off my knees Jesus, the Son of God, went up to the mountain to pray. He wanted to be in fellowship with his Father. Well, when the day came, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. Now, I'm always telling you that the apostle, the word apostle in Greek means a delegated missionary, not just someone who goes off to spread the gospel, but someone who has been chosen by the Lord to to be his representative. It, it, it's almost an ambassador. Uh, I would say it, uh, that word can also mean ambassador. I'd, I'd have to look again. Now, the important thing here is 12. In the scriptures, 12 is about government. There are 12 tribes. There are 12 prophets until Samuel comes along, who's the 13th, in which the government is changed. There are 12 gates to the city, and there are 12 thrones of judgment. When you see 12 in the scriptures, it's about establishing, generally speaking, it's about establishing government, uh, establishing a church. Uh, people who say Jesus didn't want to establish a church, they're not reading the scriptures the way that the scriptures were written, uh, that the the 12 the number 12 is about government uh so i think that's a very important thing now very interestingly that um there are 12 baskets uh um in this in the scripture in in the, in the i think it's 12 baskets hold on 12 baskets uh uh bible I want to pull up that verse. Oh, there's more music here. John 6, 13, 12 baskets. Uh, the, the, uh, the text is this. In those days, the multitude being, being very great, having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the multitude. And then how can anyone satisfy these? Uh, how many loaves do he have? Seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down. He took seven loaves and gave thanks, broke and kept giving to them. And so then they ate and were filled, and those who had eaten were 4,000. He sent them away. Uh, the first thing to note, uh, um, let's see, how many baskets of bread were left after over the two feedings? Twelve in the Jewish region and seven in Mark in the Gentile region. But the twelve. What's the? What are the twelve baskets about? Well, this is just me conjecturing. Um, the 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 seven baskets uh, in the Gentile when he when he did this on the Greek speaking side of the river. Uh, I think that's about the sacraments, which which 
it's a symbol for the sacraments which bring the Gentiles into the family of Israel. But the twelve, the disciples are the ones who are to feed. Jesus is establishing a government of of his disciples to care for and to feed the multitude. Uh, and of course the church feeds them spiritually and materially. So I think that twelveness, even in the story of the twelve baskets, uh um uh in the Gospel of John, um well that that um I think has to do with, with government. So enough said about that. Let's take a break and we'll come back with some letters and um uh, the phones will be open at 888-914-9149. We receive hundreds of your phone calls every day thanks to the Catholic Order of Foresters studio line. Our sponsor offers flexible life insurance and annuities. Visit relevantradio.com slash Forrester today. An Illinois life insurance society not available in all states. Church twice on Sunday and once in the middle of the week. Those good old revivals when they hit their highest peak. How I love to go to church twice on Sunday. It makes me feel so good. I'd like to mend my way to go back to the day of my child. Well, church on Sunday, twice on Sunday, once. I should explain that because I imagine most of the listeners here are Catholic. You went to the morning service on Monday, then prayer meeting on, or Sunday rather, then Sunday night prayer meeting, and then uh, Wednesday night Bible study. But Catholics, I know a lot of Catholics who go every day, ha, daily mass. It's a good thing to do. We did that when I was a kid. We lived practically next to the church and... It's funny because I never thought of my parents as terrible. I mean, they were devout. I mean, it was the stuff that made our life up. But, hmm. well, at any rate, I want to go back to uh, the mistake I made. Uh, oh, we have a live read about great saints. Let me, yeah, let me, let me, let me, uh, that's coming up. Where's the live read? I should read the live read. Uh, have I got the live read? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, on this show, we, we're, we're going to, on November the 1st, of course, we're, we're uh, uh, doing uh, 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 Lives of the Saints, which is, of course, reasonable. But um, I'm taking a couple of German saints, St. Willy Broad and St. Boniface. I don't know if you've ever heard of St. Saint, Willy Broad and Boniface, but they are amazing men. And, um, well, you should know about them. So that's who we're doing here. You'll learn all about Saints Boniface and Villibroard. So there you go. All right. Where, where were, oh, I wanted to talk about a mistake I just made. Um, in the reading where it says you are being built up into the, um, uh, the household of God, I, I, I looked at that and I, I read house. It is household your house well let me i said i don't know i looked at it and yeah it, it is household members of the family of god householders people who live in the house but in the house too you're being built up it says further in the passage into a holy shrine the naus which was the central part of the temple which i think is interesting because um 
you know, the temple in Jerusalem was a bunch of essentially concentric squares, and the the innermost part was the shrine, the naus. You had the whole temple complex, which was the Huron, which was sacred, and and then you had the inner part, which was the naus, the shrine. And then in the inner part of the inner part, you had the Holy of Holies into which the high priest went once a year. However, um, uh, um, you're being built, the, the text does say, into that holy shrine. You're right in the heart of the temple. You're not just, you're just not just the temple. You're in the heart of the temple, which I think is a really lovely thing. Uh, so that said, uh, let us go to uh, letters. How's that? Okay, uh, let's see here. Oh, and the phones are open at 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. All right, let's see. Okay, I answered this one yesterday about uh, inflatable ghosts on rectories. Um, <laughs> apparently, I was in a rectory that had a real ghost. Uh, <laughs> when I was at, in a certain parish in which I was a pastor, they said the rectory was haunted. Well, I got there and I... I I blessed the rectory and slept like a rock. I never saw nothing. But uh, um, <laughs> one doesn't need to be afraid of such things. It's the living that are problematic, especially in that. Never mind. I'm okay. Is it common? This is from uh, um, someone who wishes to be anonymous. Is it common to have cantors and music directors who are not Catholic, but working in a Catholic parish? Why is this allowed at all? Well, for a number of reasons. First of all, it's hard to find good musicians, and uh, uh, increasingly it gets difficult to find people who are competent uh, music directors and organists. So, yeah, that that, that is not forbidden. Um, people talk about Catholic music. What is Catholic music? Is Bach Catholic music? Well, not technically. He was a Protestant. Well, he wrote some beautiful things. I think we can be a little too uh, uh, picky about this. Um I would say, however, uh, you know, that you, you need to make sure, well, oh dear, here we go. This isn't mass hysteria, but it's going to get close. Uh, you need to make sure that Catholic music is being played. And I fully believe in the liturgy of the Second Vatican Council and what the Vatican Council said about the mass thoroughly that Gregorian chant should have pride of place and that the instrument which is most favored is the organ. And one can use local instruments and local music sparingly for pastoral reasons. However, the bulk of the liturgy is supposed to be Gregorian chant. And if you have a musical instrument, it's supposed to be an organ. Now, really good Catholic music uh, should use even the organ sparingly, which is uh, kind of hard to do. Um, that uh, you should be able to leave a Catholic service, and if someone asks you, do they have organ? So, you know, I didn't notice. The purpose of the organ is to sustain the human voice, uh, especially when you have a choir of aging sopranos, which is not uncommon, because they tend to sort of wander afield. So an organ is there to sustain the human voice. But strictly speaking, just as in the temple, that 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 the music should be chanted by human voices in any instrumentation is just there to sustain build the city of god 
Don't get me started. This is not Catholic music, even if it's played by a Catholic. Um, it's it's bad theology, and it's it's never mind. I, I just really think it's bad theology. Build the city of God? No, no. Behold, I saw the new Jerusalem descending from God out of heaven, adorned as a bride for a husband. Uh, oh, I'm off the topic. Bad time. So yeah, if you have a good a good cantor, or or or. Uh, uh, or organist or choir director who is going to play Catholic genuinely uh, traditional music, meaning a lot of a lot of good chant, uh, and um, play an organ softly to sustain the human voice. Um, yeah, fine. Also, oh, this is I here. I'm, people argue with me about this all the time, but the the closer that a, a song leader comes to the microphone the less people will sing. We're paying her or him to do our job. Well, to lead in song or to sing a verse, you go near the microphone, then when the people are supposed to come, come in on the chorus or on the, on the, the, uh, the, the verse, wherever they're supposed to come in, step back from the microphone. You'll get people singing more loudly eventually. And just a note to priests, Father, you may think you sound like Luciano Pavarotti, but you sound a lot more like, well, a large frog half the time. At least I do. When you sing at the top of your voice into the little mic that is attached to the collar of your chasuble, you're making it pretty impossible for anyone else to sing, and you're usually fairly off-key. I know that some of us like to sing with great gusto, which is wonderful. Provided we're not singing with great gusto into a mic, making it impossible for our congregations to join in. I'm sorry. I've just, you know, now that I'm old, I get to go to Mass occasionally, and you notice things. All right, moving along, now that I've offended just about everybody who's listening, let's find another letter. All right, this is this is more question uh, from, from uh, uh, oh, we do have plenty of lines open, by the way. 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. I want to give a little more time to phone calls. I'm, I'm, I'm talking too much myself. All right, this is, this is a very interesting question. This is Ron from Tampa. Was the Catholic Church started by Alexander the Great? Huh? No, Alexander the Great lived 300 years before Christ. The Catholic Church was started by Jesus Christ, Jesus, the Messiah, Son of God, Son of Mary, through the ministry of the Apostles. There is a wonderful chart on the web uh, called, Who's, uh, let me pull it up, Who Started My Church? Uh, okay, there it is, Who Started My Church? Who Founded Your Church? That if you if you do a Google for that, you'll find out. There's wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, list of, of churches. You go, for instance, to the Unitarian Church. It started in Poland but died out. Then it was replaced uh, by a man, John Biddle, in 1645. Unitarians don't believe in the Trinity. The Episcopalian Church. It was founded by Samuel Seabury in the American colonies. It is an offshoot of the Church of England. Uh, let's see here. Um, the um, uh, Evangelical Church, uh, founded by Jacob Albright, Albright in A.D. 1803. The Mormons, 1829. The Seventh-day Adventists, 1831. Um, let's see here. Uh, the, the, uh, there are all these, these churches that were founded 
by men at most 500 years ago. But you know what? There were people talking about the Catholic Church in oh, around 80 AD because there were a lot of little little churches. There were little sect churches, you know, the church founded by uh, this heretic or that Gnostic. And so they began to talk about the Church of the Bishops or the Great Church or the Catholic Church. The Church, and the word Catholic, of course, means universal. So... The Universal Church was founded by Jesus through the ministry of the, through the, ministry of the Apostles 2,000 years ago. And I would much rather be in a church that was founded by Jesus instead of one that was founded by a king of England or, or a, a, a philosopher in France or, a, you know, a French lawyer or something like that. Um, so, in other words, no, the, the Catholic Church... Uh, was founded by someone who lived 300 years after Alexander the Great. What you're probably probably heard, Ron, was somebody said, well, the Catholic Church was founded by the Emperor Constantine, who was a Roman emperor who reigned, oh, around 325 A.D., about 300 years after Christ. And, no, the Catholic Church was in existence long before Constantine, Constantine gave independence or freedom of worship to the Roman Empire and made the church universal, the church Catholic, legal, but he didn't found it. Uh, St. Irenaeus of Lyon, who wrote around 180 AD, was talking about the absolute importance of the role of the Bishop of Rome, in other words, the papacy. 80 years after, or 100 years, a century after Peter and Paul, essentially, if they a, a little longer than a century. So that's that's a terrible myth. The Catholic Church wasn't started by Alexander the Great. It wasn't started by Constantine the Great. It was started by Jesus through the ministry of the apostles. I think that's historically pretty verifiable. All right, let us go to a break. We'll come back with a word of the day, and the phones are open at 888-914-9149. Today, we'd like to thank Raymond, who's listening in New Jersey, for donating his Subaru. You can join thousands of other listeners in donating old vehicles by visiting relevantradio.com slash car today. Yes, we'll gather at the river, a beautiful, beautiful river, gather with the saints Well, here we are gathered with the holy ones at the river, so... That's great old music. All right, let's go to the word of the day. Well, I'm I'm on a I'm on a toot about sacrifice. I you know as I'm constantly telling you, you gotta know the Old Testament to understand the New. And the generic word for sacrifice is korban. It's fascinating that in the Aramaic-speaking church, there are a lot of Aramaic-speaking Christians in the world. Assyrians speak uh, um, Aramaic. Um, the the West Syriacs speak Aramaic. So I had a parish full of people who spoke Aramaic. Well, not the whole parish, but a lot of them spoke Aramaic. And uh, uh, it's the language that Jesus spoke. And their word for Mass was the same as the Jewish word for sacrifice, korban. 
That's the generic word for sacrifice. When Jesus says uh, in the parables, or rather in the Gospels, that anyone who says to his mother or father uh, uh, that 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 uh, whatever I would give you is korban, I, I think that, that people don't quite understand that. That means it's a very complicated thing. If you got mad at your parents and wanted to make a vow that you'd never help them again, a vow that you couldn't break, you said, whatever I would have given you is korban. In other words, dedicated as sacrifice. And so if you relented, changed your mind, and made up with mom and dad, you still couldn't give them anything, according to the Pharisees, because, well, anything that you would have given them or will give them, you have to give to the temple. Very convoluted reasoning. And Jesus said exactly that. This is nuts. Of course, I'm paraphrasing scripture. Now, korban, it doesn't mean prohibited or dedicated. It comes from the word karab, which means to draw near. Uh, we read in the scriptures that you should not draw near to the Lord without without bringing a gift. Uh, should not. Oh, dear. I'm going to get the elevator music and draw near to the Lord without. I'm not hearing the elevator music without. You see, just when you think you understand what's going on. Ah, there's the elevator music. Okay. All right. All right. Um, no, I can't find it. Uh, but it's in there. Trust me, in the Old Testament, uh, you, you, should, you should draw near to the Lord with an offering. Uh, that, that, that's a very important concept. Uh, so uh, um, that's what a sacrifice is. The generic thing it is... Uh, Drawing close to the Lord with with an offering. So that's what the word sacrifice comes from. Now, there are many different kinds of sacrifice, and we're going to go through all of that. So um, that that's Corban. All right, let's go to callers. This is smart. Maxwell smart. Whom do we have on the line, dear voice in my head? Anne. Anne from Coventry, Rhode Island. What can I do for you? Hello, Father. So good to talk with you. You were well, my first you. love on radio, Relevant oh, Radio. bless you, my uh, child. <laughs> I have a question, and maybe because you're so astute when it comes to the Jewish faith. Um, I wear well, a Star of David yeah. on, uh, with my uh, crucifix. And yeah. I just wonder, I just can't help it. I appreciate that faith so much. And, and I, like one wise man once said, they are our elders. Does that sound familiar? Yes. I think yes. you said it. Well, yes. I don't know if I said it, but Is it? I know that I, I know that I think Pope Benedict has called them our, or maybe it was Pope John Paul. I don't know. One of the popes said our elder brothers in the faith, and I think that that is appropriate. That is appropriate. Now, oh, people goodness. say that the people say that we we our spiritual ancestors are the Jews and. I don't think that's true. I think we and the Jews are kind of cousins, that we share spiritual ancestors in the religion of Israel, which is kind of a little fine-tuning, but it, it doesn't change much. But the the Star of David, it's also called the Shield of David, the Magan David, that, 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 that Magan means shield in Hebrew. And, and um, you know, that the Jesus is a descendant of David. So I think it's not inappropriate for a believer in Jesus to wear the, the shield of David, the, the star. So yeah, I think you're you're fine. So, uh, of course, it'll get a lot of comments from people, some of them not nice, but meh. 
Big deal. Does that help a little? It helps absolutely a lot. God bless you. Well, thank you. And Relevant Radio and your listeners. Thank well, you. Good. Well, bless you. Thank you. All right. Whom do we have now, dear voice in my head? Martin from Orlando, Florida. What can I do for you, Martin? Well, I've been a Catholic for many years, and um, and I have never had or been asked to put any input into the uh, uh, running of the church. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I own stock in Amazon, McDonald's, ExxonMobil, mm-hmm. and every year I get a proxy statement to vote for the board mm-hmm. of directors. And I would assume that the board of directors would be analogous to the Cardinals. I've never been asked to vote, sure. have the opportunity to vote Cardinal. I've never had the opportunity to lend my opinion about what oh. I think should be a sin. Um, the commandments are still 10 of them. There used to be 13. <laughs> oh, 13 commandments. Well, that's because well, the church well, isn't a business. It's a family. The, the church is supposed to be a family. Did your parents ask you for input on... On a lot, not necessarily, but yeah, we just had uh, we're undergoing a synodal process, and they are asking for people's input. But the danger of that is people think that we can vote on the truth, and we can't. That's the problem. We're not dealing with a product; we're dealing with truth, and you don't vote on truth. We we have been handed down truth since the time of Christ, and that's what we're doing. We are we are handing on that truth, and so. I, the bishop doesn't ask for my advice on the truth. He says, this is what Christ has taught, Father Simon. Go out and do your best to, to share it. So we're not a business. We don't have a product. We, we are, the, we are the, the, the handers on of what we have received from Christ through the ministry of the apostles on this Feast of St. Simon and Jude. And so to vote on the truth, there are churches that do that, but not the Church of Christ. You know, that the truth is the truth is the truth. And uh, I think any good pastor asks the input of people on projects in the church. I know I did regularly. On <laughs> I needed help with the buildings. I needed help with the accounting. I had a parish council. I had a parish finance committee. Uh, I had groups that taught kids. And I regularly asked their advice. But you see... Uh, we we're not a business and the more that we conform ourselves to a business model the less we're the church of christ and the great danger in the church today is that we are increasingly in certain places not everywhere but in certain places we are increasingly learning the practices of a business and where the church is closer to a business model it has less and less dynamism uh, this kind of the sin of Simon the Magician, speaking of the feasts of St. Simon. There's Simon Magus, look him up, Simon, uh, and then Magus, M-A-G-U-S, uh, in the Bible. He wanted to purchase the ability to, to, to bring in the Holy Spirit. He thought this would be good for business, being a magician. And uh, Peter said, may God strike you <laughs> and your money. So that's why we don't uh, consult in the same way. We do consult, but we... We should not consult in the same way that the business world does. So I hope that helps. Whom do we have now, dear voice in my head? Marie from Cherry Hill, what can I do for you? Hi. My question is, did God create the devil? Yes. 
He created the angel uh, uh, whose name was Lucifer, which means bearer of light, who was one of the great angels of heaven. Then Lucifer rebelled, and he became the devil. The word devil is from a Greek word meaning accuser. He became the accuser. Uh, so, That's what I thought. Yes, he, he, but, but God created something good. Remember, good, good is not something, good can be defined as the absence of evil, or evil can be described as the absence of good, just as dark as the absence of light. And so when, right. when that angel turned his back on the light, uh, he became, he entered into darkness. So, in a sense, the diabolical nature of the devil, uh, the devil, that, that he did himself, just as I do when I sin. Does that help? Yes, very much. Thank you. Good. God bless you, and I hope I hope that uh, that enlightens. Well, good. Whom do we have now, dear voice in my head? Margaret from Chicago. Tell me, you got a softball for me? I think so, Father. My oh, question good. is regarding the Day of the Dead. Um, ah, yeah. Oh, no, not a softball. Oh. <laughs> our, our grandchildren attend a uh, Catholic grammar school uh, with a diverse ethnic background. Yes. And yes. the school is going to, on Wednesday, celebrate more Day, uh, day of the Dead, not so much um, All Souls Day. And, mm -hmm. you know, I wondered what your thoughts were on that. Oh, yeah. oh dear. They're I thinking of not, not to... sending the kids to school that day so as uh, not to participate in it. Yeah, well... You know, you could do that. Um, we are so enmeshed in political correctness. Now, the Day of the Dead is a day originally is, is a, um, uh, it started in Mexico. And it was, well, you know, I, I don't know nearly as much about it as I should. But the Day of the Dead really is a very Mexican fiesta, uh, festival. Uh, and but it was a celebration of All Saints and All Souls Day, um, and it was that same kind of thing. Uh, they honor the deceased um, and they pray for those who've gone before them. That's a wonderful, wonderful uh, idea. However, when you begin to glorify uh, uh, things that are are well. Uh, not about the, the, the repose of the soul, the faithful souls, then you're, you're getting in trouble. You see, this is something that everyone said, oh, this isn't true, that, that the indigenous people in, in Mexico City, when it was Tenochtitlan in the days of the Aztecs, they sacrificed people by the thousands. Oh, that was just a, a lie told by the, the Spanish missionaries. Well, they've recently done some archaeology and found the skull racks, that they would have these skull racks in Mexico City, the sacrificial victims, they would, they, they killed people in the thousands on their pyramids and threw their, their bleeding bodies down the steps of these temples and they would decapitate them and put their heads on these racks until there was nothing left but the skull. That's demonic. That religion was profoundly de demonic. And this idea of elevating the skull, you know, kind of the cult of the skull, I don't approve of it at all. 
the day of the dead, uh, the the a day of remembering those who've gone before, thanking them for uh, the gift of Christ that they gave us, and praying for the repose of the soul. That's wonderful. So that's what I think about it. It's being like like Halloween has been taken over by commercialism and forces that may well be demonic. I think that they're trying to do the same thing to the Day of the Dead in Mexico, uh, change it from a religious feast to a a celebration of of evil. That's what I think about it. Now, I don't know. People have to make a decision of conscience. Um, uh, you know, one of the one of the things about the Day of the Dead uh, uh, is celebrations can can be humorous. Uh, and the idea is to remember funny stories and and, and uh, events that happen in the lives of those who've gone before. So it, it's a rejoicing about the people we love who are in the Lord. But beyond that, I think it's probably inappropriate. Does that help a little? It helps a great deal, Father. Thank you. We have a lot to think about. Oh, yeah. And and this takeover of Halloween and the Day of the Dead by what are essentially uh, cynical commercial sources, uh, you know, not good, not good. So at any rate, ah, the times... <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for calling, and I, I hope that throws some light on it. Who do we have now, dear voice in my head? Ed from Vallejo. I've been to Vallejo. I know all about Vallejo. I've been to, to currently Captain Vallejo's house. There you go. Hey, Father. Yeah, Father, I'm, it's bothering me. The LGBTQ, whatever. You know, yeah. I've got to love your brothers and sisters, but I you disagree do. with that. And if I disagree, they say I'm a hater, hateful person. And that's I don't so, hate anyone. No, that's 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 very, very funny that, that people often do what they accuse us of doing. You know, that, that, that we're hateful. No, we don't hate you. We just don't think that that uh, that that what you're doing is a good thing. And it's not going to be good for you. It's not going to be good for the world. You hater! No, we don't hate at all. You know, I, you know. I quite honestly, I, I have great respect for some of the people I know who have experienced same-sex attraction. I, I'm thinking of one guy in particular who, who was an incredible servant of the poor and struggled all his life with, with that problem. Uh, but he did his best uh, to live the way that he knew Christ wanted him to live, to live according to the teachings of the church. And he did so much good in his life, just phenomenal good with uh, in, uh, service to the poor and, and, and housing of people who were sick. Um, you know, it, it's just it's just crazy that we tend to define ourselves by our passions and by our addictions. And that's nuts. So I, you know, and they're going to hate us because, well, we follow Christ. They, they hated him, as he said, so they will hate us. And eh, every time someone persecutes you, Jesus says you should rejoice because they did so to the prophets. Well, speaking of prophets, and I'm not talking about prophets like making money. I'm talking about speaking the truth. Drew is coming up.